morning, everyone. It's a delight to be with you. You know, I speak a lot of places uh, once, so it's really a treat to be invited back uh, here to Scottsdale Bible. I do appreciate it, and to be part of your summer playlist is really a treat for me. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to talk to you this morning about uh, an issue that has been uh, bubbling in my head for a long time now. Not quite 30 years, but definitely over 20 and uh, it's been the kind of subject that once we get into it, I think you'll realize why it's the kind of thing someone like me would think about, because it's probably something that someone like you would think about as well. Um, it has a lot to do with uh, my children. I have five grown children, uh, Joy, Jesse, Jeffrey, John, and Joseph, and uh, they are doing now what they're supposed to be doing, giving us uh, grandchildren, and we will have 10 by the end of the year is really wonderful. That's why my wife's not here. She's at a granddaughter's birthday party this weekend. I know everyone's always disappointed uh, when they don't get to see uh, Mrs. Butterworth, but um, uh, I, I hope to be invited back on a non-grandchild birthday weekend and we can, we can bring her with. But, um, but I remember when my, uh, my youngest child, my fifth child, was, was born, uh, there was an incident that occurred uh, that really caught my attention. Now, I probably need to set it up a little bit. It was, uh, it was quite a while ago. It was more than 20 years ago. And uh, I was living and working in Southern California, where I live now, uh, working for a wonderful man. You probably know him or have heard of him, Chuck Swindoll. And I was working at Insight for Living, which was a marvelous ministry opportunity because uh, my job was to help him with some writing and do some of the counseling there. And it was a Monday through Friday job. I mean, who do you know in professional ministry who gets his weekends off. Uh, but that's the way it was. I had uh, a Monday through Friday job, uh, but I loved speaking in churches like I am with you this weekend. And so consequently, I started developing kind of a ministry on the side where I would go out and speak to uh, groups throughout the weekend. So a typical week would find me working Monday through Friday, but about Friday afternoon, a little early, I'd sneak out. If you know Southern California, I'd take a bus from Disneyland to LAX, and then I'd fly off and spend a weekend with a group like you. Interestingly enough, back then, one of my favorite themes was, you need to spend more time with your family. I would get back very late Sunday night, so late that my kids were already in bed. I remember getting up early Monday morning to get into the office to make up for the time I missed by uh, sneaking out early Friday afternoon. So if you're doing the math, uh, there were many weekends where I would not see my kids from the time I tucked them in Thursday night uh, until the time we were reunited at dinner on Monday evening. And, and I'll go ahead and finish that math for you. Uh, that certainly wasn't what God had in mind in terms of how to be uh, a good father. So when I say to you that my youngest son, Joseph, entered the land of language, he spoke his first words on a Monday night at the dinner table, you get a little bit more of the power behind it. I remember we were sitting there and he was in his high chair, mom was on one side and I was on the other, and God hit that on switch. You know, I think kids enter language several different ways. Most kids, frankly, just get lucky. They're just one day, go, 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 mama, mama, broccoli, you know. Uh, but then there are those others where God hits the on switch and 
the kid starts to speak. That's exactly what happened with Joseph. Hit the on switch. I'll never forget. He turned and he looked at his mom and his face lit up. And with unmistakable clarity, he said, hey, ma. And then he turned and looked at me and his face lit up. And with the same clarity, he goes, hey, Bob. And my wife didn't miss a beat. She said, whoa, you've been on the road too much. To which I said, never mind that. Who's Bob? (laughs) Well, I found out there was no Bob, and I didn't know whether that was good news or bad news, because that meant my little boy doesn't even know who I am, doesn't know me as dad. Good night, he doesn't even have the first name right. And I remember just kind of sinking into this funk of like, what am I doing with my life? What am I really doing that matters in my life? What am I teaching my children that will be passed on to them as a legacy, if you will? And, and I remember really getting serious about this. I was just kind of in this daze for, for several weeks. And of course, you know, with kids, once they start talking, the, the green light is on. And they move into that next phase. And I'll never forget the next phase. Because the next phase is children have two, three, four words that they love. And they say them all the time, right? Joseph had three. If he wanted more food, he'd say, more. And if he wanted something to drink, he'd say, dink. And interestingly enough, he began calling me, Bill. I was not offended. I felt he meant no disrespect. Um, after all, we had started with Bob, so we were moving in the right direction. But I wish I had a video of those days where I'm sitting at the dinner table in this haze trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life while he's over there barking at me, more dink, Bill. (laughs) Well, it started me on a study about what really matters in God's eyes. I mean, obviously, there were scheduling things I needed to change, and it wasn't long after that that I resigned my position at Insight for Living and and started traveling full-time, which I've been doing now for the last 25 years. Granted, I'm on the road a lot more, but I was also home a lot more in order to be with my kids. But what am I doing when I'm with my kids? Now, I know there's a wide variety of folks here today, and some of you have children at home. Some of you have grown, raised your kids years ago. Some of you don't have children in your life. The issues are still the same. You are impacting a circle of people that are around you. And the questions I'd like you to consider this morning are, what are you passing on to them? Uh, The word our culture uses is the word legacy. What will you leave behind? Not not real estate, not, not stock portfolios, not, not last will and testament. I'm talking about character. What is it that you will leave behind? What will people say about you when you are no longer here? It, it sent me on a study of the scriptures. And I will save you some time. As best as I can tell, there is no verse in the Bible that begins with the phrase, this is what thy children shall say about thee when thou diest. Okay, it's not there. But I was, I was desperate to find a passage of Scripture that would help me understand what God is looking for in terms of legacy in my life. And then one night I was reading a passage and all of a sudden my mind flashed back to growing up back east, back in Philadelphia. This was one of the passages we had to memorize in Sunday school when I was a little kid in the old King James Version. 
was good enough for the Apostle Paul, was good enough for us, right? So we, we learned the old King James Version of 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. It, it's as if God hit me over the head with a hammer. He said, okay, blonde boy, you want to know what's important? I'll give you what's important. Matter of fact, I'll give you three things that are important and even identify the gold medal winner out of the three. You want to create something, and this, of course, became uh, the, the outline for this book that Pat just mentioned, the short list. Uh, the subtitle for the book is, In a Life Full of Choices, There Are Only Four That Matter. What are the choices that matter in life? I believe it's choosing character qualities in your life that are significant. And for our time together this morning, I thought we'd look at the top one. That God says there are three in this passage that are significant. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Now, if I'm not careful and jump into this pretty quickly, I'm going to lose you because we are saturated in a culture that thinks they know everything they need to know about love. Now, I have my own little theory on this. I believe all of us learn our earliest lessons about love, not from the church, not from God, not from the scriptures, but from movies and TV. And then music as well. And I, I must confess, I, I was an early disciple of uh, John and Paul and, and George and Ringo because they taught me all you need is love. And they discipled Stephen Stills who had the fascinating lyric, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Now that's deep. And I grew up loving Lucy, and, and somewhere along the line it changed, and now we love Raymond. I have no idea what that means, but we took a ride on the love boat, and somewhere along the line, we felt we knew all there was to know about love. But God has a very different definition of what love looks like from His perspective. And rather than going to 1 Corinthians 13, which I believe many people know, and in some ways you feel like it's been exhausted for you, or 1 John 4, which is another popular New Testament passage on love, I thought we'd look at a little bit more of an obscure one this morning found in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you have your New Testaments with you, I would invite you to turn uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 with me this morning. Now, 1 Thessalonians is a great book. Uh, that and Galatians, it's probably the first, one of the first two books that the Apostle Paul wrote. And, and you can summarize uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians if you were to use kind of like visual or hand signs. 1 Thessalonians is a giant group hug. It's like you all are doing such a good job, keep up the good work. Uh, in contrast, just to give you one, uh, when Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, if you were to use a hand symbol, 1 Corinthians is kind of a finger wagging. You know, shame on you. You guys know better than this. What's the deal? But rather than having a finger wagging in our face, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is kind of grabbing us all together for a giant group hug. And in chapter 4, there's a tiny four-verse paragraph, verses 9, 10, 11, and 12, that speak very profoundly to the whole idea of what a loving person would really look like. And if you were going to create a legacy of love, if that was the number one item on your short list, we have enough to go with right here in 1 Thessalonians 4. 
uh, for a lifetime of application. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. In those four verses, Paul tells us what we need to know about how to be a loving person. The first point comes right out of verse 9, and it goes like this. Number one, loving people know that love is the top priority. Loving people know that love is the top priority. I, I, I so enjoy how verse 9 is phrased. Concerning the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Boy, in seminary, I would have killed for a verse like this. You don't need to decipher this and, and decode it out of the Greek. You don't need to study the the tenses, you can move right on to verse 10. Why is Paul saying that? He's saying, because you are so characterized by love, it isn't even necessary for me to, to tell you. Can you imagine being part of a group that is so characterized by love that one of the biblical writers says, I don't even need to remind you of this, this is so obvious in your life. It, it's kind of Bible talk for it, love is as plain as the nose on your face. You are such a loving group. And, and I invite you back to that 1 Corinthians passage. Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. The greatest of these is love. Frankly, in the circles I travel, this is a little bit of a hard verse to teach, if you don't mind me saying. Faith, hope, and love. Which is most important? I meet a lot of people who say, either by their words or by their actions, well, the most important thing is our faith. We need to stand on our doctrinal beliefs. We're not going to compromise on anything. We're not going to let anybody soft in here. We're going to stick to our guns. And that's absolutely an essential thing. But for some reason, Paul doesn't list that as the top. Now, your problem is with the Apostle Paul, if you don't agree with that. Not with me. I'm just reading the Bible to you, okay? And then there are others that would say, well, you know, I'd even go with hope before I'd go with love. I mean, the biblical concept of hope, the Greek word elpis, to joyfully anticipate, it's what sets Christianity apart from everything else. That Christians have a message of, of, of future joy. That it's not only fulfillment here on earth right now, but it's the anticipation of what's ahead. That's another really good answer. But that's not what Paul writes. He says the greatest of these is love. Love is the top priority. Now let me explain one reason why I think Paul makes this statement and is so significant. It's the subpoint in your outline. It's understanding that love is an act of the will. Love is an act of the will. Let me illustrate it for you uh, a, a couple different ways. First of all, let's explain it from the text. Verse 9 says at the end, you are taught by God to love one another. You are taught by God to love one another. Uh, in, in Christian language, that would be called a command. Okay? God commands you, love one another. Nowhere in the Bible do I ever read God commanding me to produce something that's purely on an emotional level. I mean, a lot of us think of love as an emotion. But that's not what God, a command 
goes beyond the emotional level. You'll never read a verse in the Bible. And God told the people, cry. And the people responded, <laughs> you, know, you just can't cry at will. I mean, even in Hollywood, I got to figure it out now. Right before the camera goes on, they just like yank a nose hair. That's why they're crying. It's not because they can just produce it at will, okay? All right? You can't produce emotion at will. Many years ago, when Pat and I first met, one of the first circuits I got on was the Christian college circuit. Because they ha all Christian colleges have this wonderful, quaint custom that somewhere during the week they have a service that they call chapel. And the entire student body is there. And I'll never forget the first time I went to a Christian college and I spoke at their chapel. I was first of all amazed. The place was packed. And being young and proud and full of myself, I was sitting next to the president, and I said, whoo, they must have heard I was coming. This place is packed. And he said, yeah, I think they did. Plus, it's required. If they don't come, we kick them out of school. <laughs> so he realized, oh, we got, a, we got one on the line here. So I'm going to work with this guy a little bit. Hey, you know, they really must think you're amazing. Why don't you stay over and do a voluntary session tonight? I said, oh yeah, I'll pack the place out again, sure. So I'll never forget that first volunteer session. As, as, as the six of us circled up our chairs and, and talked about college life, I realized if I was ever going to do a volunteer session again on a college campus, I better have a hot topic or I'm getting nobody there. So the second time I went to another Christian college and did chapel and they invited me to do voluntary stuff, I said, hey, if you're interested, gang, tonight... I'm going to try to answer the question, how to know if you're really in love. The place was jammed. And they all came in kind of like Noah's Ark in, in pairs. <laughs> Girls leading the way. And they, the girls would have that furrowed look on their brow. You know, I think Arnold is the one, but I've got questions. There are issues. You know, and Arnold in tow, muttering, I heard there might be free food. <laughs> so I would try to explain to them that as God defines love, love is multifaceted. I said, consider this. In God's design, there's a physical attribute to love. There's a reason why the two of you were attracted to one another. And you like to hold hands, and you like to put your arm around, and you like to have a little kiss. That's all God's design. And someday when you're married, the, the total ultimate sexual union is a glorious gift from God. There is a physical aspect to love. There's an emotional aspect to love. Women are way ahead of men on this. You girls, you're sitting here in the college room, you see your boyfriend comes in the other side of the room and, oh, I see him and, oh, I get butterflies and my knees get weak. Oh, you know, and guys try to respond in kind. Yeah, yeah, I saw you and, and like I was nauseous. Guys try, but we don't quite get it, do we? But beyond physical and emotional, there's also the volitional aspect, that love is an act of the will. I choose to love you. And that means I choose to love you whether you are currently lovable or unlovable. I simply choose to love you. Anybody got anybody unlovable in your life right now? Don't raise your hand. They might be right here. But you know what I'm saying? It's like, wow, I need to choose 
as an act of the will to love this person. Now, in all the years when my kids were growing up, and especially in the summer, I'd bring them all along with me, and they'd all sit on the front row, and my kids have been wonderfully good sports through all the years because I would always talk about their foibles in life, and I'd get to this point, choosing to love the unlovable. Which kid should I pick out? You want to talk about changing dirty diapers? You want to talk about pre-adolescent boys that you can smell their socks coming a mile away? You want to talk about teenagers? You want to talk about my lovely 40-year-old still with me? You, you know, what do you want to talk about and one day one of my friends said to me whoa you really go after your kids I said oh they're good sports no problem he says he asked me a question I've never been asked before he said do you ever think your kids ever had to choose to love you because you were unlovable and I remember laughing I thought he was telling me a joke <laughs> he goes no, no no I'm serious you ought to ask your kids if they ever had to love you because you were unlovable so I gathered the five kids together. And I said, we got a few minutes to answer this question. Did you ever have to love me, choose to love me because I was unlovable? You know, like six hours later when we had to break up the meeting, I mean, they were still going strong. I, I don't care who it is. If you have someone in your life that you love, it involves choosing the unlovable. After I resigned from Insight for Living, uh, not too long after that, we decided that we couldn't afford the real estate in Southern California. So we moved to Northern California, just below Lake Tahoe, above Sacramento, this tiny little burg in the foothills called Grass Valley. And the homes were affordable, and we got all set up there. And I'll never forget the first spring in Grass Valley, because my oldest son had just finished the year before playing Little League baseball, and he loved it. And it was time to sign up for Grass Valley Little League. And we signed up, and I could tell already it was kind of a low-grade version of Orange County uh, Little League. And when Jesse had played on the, the Fullerton Dodgers, for example, that was his team. Sorry to bring up that name here, but, when he, but you beat us last night. It's okay. Um, when they would get their uniforms, it was exact replicas of the professional team. It was like real live Dodger uniforms that had been put in the dryer too long. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it was amazing. So Grass Valley Little League, the coach says, come early next practice, you're gonna get your uniforms. And Jesse could barely sleep that night. He was so excited. And the next practice he comes and they, they hand him his T-shirt. That's it. And darling, naive, hopeful Jesse, he turns around, looks at me and goes, Dad, they're handing out T-shirts to wear under the uniforms. I mean, son, that's it. His little lips quivering. Oh, dad. You know, and it's like, talk to the coach. I remember going over to the coach. Is this it? And he's like, well, you got to go buy him a hat. But yeah, this is it. What's your problem? Are you from Southern California? You're all alike. Everybody's great. Stop stealing our water. <laughs> so I go to the first game. And I, then I really discover Little League on a budget. I'll never forget the coaches come out to home plate. Let's have a good game. And they turn and they face the stands behind home plate. And to my amazement, they start going, uh, I'll take you, sir. I'll take you. I'll take you, sir. I'm sitting with the rest of my kids. I'm saying, what's going on? One of my other boys goes, Dad, they're picking umps. I said, they don't hire umps? No, Dad, they pick them right out of the stands. And I'm thinking, you're not going to ask me to be an umpire when my son's on the field, are you? I mean, come on, give me a break. If he's pitching, is he ever going to throw anything besides strikes? 
I mean, if it's ever close when he's hitting, is, is it ever going to be foul? I mean, you can't put me in this situation. So all week, I'm up all night. I know they're going to pick me next Saturday. I know they're going to pick me next Saturday. And sure enough, next Saturday, the coaches shake hands. They turn around and go, I'll take you, sir. I'll take you, sir. And they look right at me. I'll take you, sir. And fortunately, I had seen that finger point at me a thousand times in seven sleepless nights, and I was ready. He said, I'll take you, sir. And I remember leaning forward in the bleachers and saying, and the coach is like, and that's German, and if you speak German, I said, I can't understand you because I believe mother is broken. And the poor coach, he's like a deer in the headlights, and he's just kind of staring at me, and he looks at my kids, and he says, your dad doesn't speak English? And as they related to me later, that was the moment. Looking up at dad, okay, do we choose to love the unlovable or do we let this big guy fry? And bless their hearts, they looked at the coach and just went, and the coach said, I'm sorry kids, we can't have someone out on the field that doesn't speak English. I didn't have to umpire the entire season. But my poor kids at school, their, their schoolmates would say, your dad doesn't speak English? What does he do for a living? And they'd say, he's a speaker. Choosing to love the unlovable. It may be as simple as dad breaking into German, or it might be as painful as situations that are probably in this room this morning. That there's somebody in your life who you genuinely loved, but now they're breaking your heart. Either through their rebellion, or their unfaithfulness, or their lying, or their addiction, or their whatever. Something is, is just eating at you, saying... It's just too difficult to love this person anymore. Remember God's command. Choose to love. Love is an act of the will. Now verse 10 gives us a second idea about love where it says, Indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. We urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Number one is loving people know that love is the top priority. Number two is loving people know that love takes practice. Loving people know that love takes practice. First phrase in verse 10 is, you do practice it. It refers back to the love of verse 9. You do practice it towards all the brethren. That says to me that love is not something that I will ultimately master in, in this lifetime. That it's not something that one day I'll know all there is to know about love and won't need to work at it anymore. No, it says to me that I can be more loving today than I was yesterday and I can be more loving tomorrow than I am today. That love will constantly be growing and that I should practice it towards all the brethren. And by the way, that second phrase, towards all the brethren, helps me understand an important sub-point here. And that is, love is in the context of a relationship. Love is in the context of a relationship. It's not just randomly thrown out there, but love is in the context of the brethren that are in Macedonia. And that's very important because it says to me that love is very specific. Love is very intentional. 
Now, out, out in Southern California, where we're all in freeway gridlock, whether the 405 is open or not, uh, all the time, we love to see little bumper stickers on the back of cars, because if we're stuck for an hour, we might as well have some sort of visual form of entertainment. And there was a very popular bumper sticker, and I'm sure you know about it, and I mean no disrespect when I say it, but I need to explain where I'm going with this. There's that, that famous bumper sticker, practice random acts of kindness. Has everybody seen that bumper sticker? Practice random acts of kindness. Now, I like the intent of that, but there's something about the wording that always throws me, and I think it's the use of the word random. Uh, for some reason, I always get the mental picture of a garden hose turned on full blast with no one holding on to it. So I'm just being kind all over the place, and I'm sprinkling kindness all over you. I have no idea who you are, but there you go. I'm sprinkling kindness over here. It's a beautiful thing. No, it isn't. It's very haphazard. Sounds very 60s, very druggy to me. Paul is not saying, just kind of love, hey, a little bit of love going over here, a little bit of love going over here. Hey, I'm just kind of randomly throwing love around. No, he's saying be very intentional about your love. Practice love in the context of a relationship. That for me to genuinely be a loving person, I need to get to know you, and then we can love one another as brothers in Christ, or as a brother and sister in Christ, or as in our relationships. That's what makes loving significant, is that it's in the context of a relationship. Loving people know that love takes practice. Now, in verses 11 and 12, it appears that we have left the idea of love because 11 says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Attend to your own business. Work with your hands just as we commanded you. 12 says, so that you may, not behave, uh, so that you may behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. We've not left the topic of love. Some of you think back to eighth grade English composition class. How did your teacher teach you how to write a paragraph? That a good paragraph has what's called a topic sentence, and everything in the paragraph relates back to the topic, or you start a new paragraph. So we have a four-verse paragraph, even though the last two don't mention the word love and almost seem like we've left the idea of love, it's right there in between the lines on every verse. Point number one, loving people know that love is the top priority. Point number two, loving people know that love takes practice. Point number three, loving people know love's tremendous power. Loving people know love's tremendous power. Take that first phrase in verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. The Greek word for quiet there is not the opposite of the Greek word for noisy. You would not say as a, as a New Testament mother, be quiet in there, teenager. Turn that iPod down. No, you wouldn't do that, okay? It's a different Greek word. It's a word that means settled. Make it your ambition to lead a settled life. So the sub-point I would give you here is that love can remove that unsettled feeling. Love can remove that unsettled feeling. 
Now, to me, the word settled versus unsettled still doesn't connect in a 21st century audience. But let me tell you the word that will. Make it your ambition to lead a life free of stress. Now, I always pause after I say that because I give you a chance to kind of regroup. What have you heard over the last few minutes? This guest speaker have no idea where he came from, but let's review what he's telling us. First of all, he's telling us to love unlovable people as if that is somehow easy. Now he's telling us to live life without stress. What planet does this guest speaker come from? For truly, everything he's asking me is totally impossible. I have a very difficult time loving unlovable people, thank you very much. And there's no way in my current state of affairs can I even think of living life without stress. Well, that's why we need love's tremendous power. In a group like this, as well taught as you are, forgive me for waiting this long in the message to bring up this concept because it's the key to the whole thing. But as you probably are well aware, the New Testament being written in Greek, in the Greek language, there's more than one word for love. There is a word that means love in a very physical sense. There's a Greek word for love that speaks of love between brothers. There's also a Greek word for love that's, that exclusively speaks of love that comes from God. Anybody know what that Greek word is? Agape. All throughout here, we are seeing that it is agape that makes the difference. That when God loves through me, his tremendous power at work in my life can make all the difference in the world. He can love unlovable people through me. In my own humanity, I'm having a hard time with this person. They're really unlovable, and it's gone far beyond cute and humorous. It's really serious. I have a hard time loving this person. It's not about you loving them. It's about God's love coming through you so that that tremendous power is at work in your life, and you're able to do things that you didn't even think you were able to do. Okay? And then the whole idea of stress-free, where, where does that come from? Well, as again, I see such a wide variety in this audience, there are many of us who are finally getting to the age where we are starting to ask the question, in the grand scheme of things, how important is some of this stuff that I stress over? I mean, when I put my head on the pillow at the end of the day and I realize I lost this amount of time stressing over this event, it was really ultimately very insignificant, wasn't it? And it's as love begins to permeate my life and I begin to see why I am able to coordinate my life in a better way, I can begin to eliminate the stressful stuff. There was a book title several years ago, I don't even know what the book says, but it says, don't, don't sweat the small stuff, and it's all small stuff. I have no idea what the book teaches, but you know what? That's a pretty good idea for most of us to hang on to. Most of the stuff we stress over in the grand scheme of things isn't worth stressing over. We need to focus more on loving one another. That's what makes the difference. So when my little boy called me Bob and got this whole thing started all those years ago, 
I was mulling on this thing for a long time, and finally a few years ago, it, it became time to really put this into print. And the thing that caused it was I, uh, I came home, actually I was at Mount Hermon, I came home from Mount Hermon on a Saturday afternoon to get a phone call from my sister that said, um, there's a hospital in Philadelphia that's calling, my sister lives in Miami, and they say they have dad and they won't tell me what's going on, they want to talk to you, call this hospital. So I called this hospital, my mom had passed away years before, and finally got the attending physician and found out that uh, my dad had very suddenly passed away uh, from a heart attack. And um, my sister and I flew back to Philadelphia to attend to the funeral arrangements, and we had grown up in this little church, and it was the summer, and all the pastors were on vacation, I mean all of them, to which my sister says, well, my brother's a minister, he'll, he'll do this, the funeral. So I was given the incredible opportunity to preach my dad's funeral. It wasn't an issue because my dad and I were very close. I mean, it wasn't an issue of I have a problem with my dad. What am I going to say? It's I love my dad. How am I going to reduce all of that to a short amount of time for a eulogy? And it was while I was doing that message preparation that I realized what God was allowing me to do. He was allowing me to articulate my dad's short list. What was really important to my dad in his life. And I was able to stand up there and say, you know, I knew above everything else, every day I was alive, I knew my dad loved me. And then, of course, I quickly flashed ahead and realized one day this is all going to change. Instead of my father's body over here and me standing here, my body's going to be over there and my kids are going to get up and talk about what dad meant to them. What will they articulate as my short list? What will those that are close to you articulate as your shortlist? You're alive today with the opportunity to create your own and to flesh it out, to live it out. If your shortlist differs from mine, that's really not the issue at this point. The issue is that you get intentional about it and live a life that creates a legacy for those around you. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, take these thoughts today and drive them home into the hearts of every person that hears. I pray especially for those who have unlovable people in their life today. May you uh, encourage them to move forward and love on them and choose to love them even in these difficult times. May we develop relationships that are characterized by love and may we always know the tremendous power of love. Thank you for creating a short list that we can follow. May we be attracted to that and may we commit to that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. Thank you all very much. God bless you. You're dismissed.